0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 54, the book of Acts, chapter 26. We will begin at uh, verse 9 of Acts chapter 26 today, so open your Bibles there. Verse 9, Acts chapter 26. Well, what we're going to see is is that the picturesque seaside port city of Caesarea, Maritima, which, which those of you are going on the tour, we will be at this very spot, the, which is the provincial capital then of the local region that included Judea, we find Shaul, Paul, standing before Governor Festus, King Agrippa, and Queen Bernice and an assortment of other unnamed dignitaries. Now the purpose of this gathering is not as Paul's judicial trial since it's already occurred. And the result of this trial were ambiguous to say the least. In fact, it is precisely the vagueness of the testimony that was given by Paul's accusers and then Paul's rebuttal to it that it has put Festus in a similar befuddled position as it did for Festus's predecessor, Felix. Both Felix and Festus could make a little sense of the accusations against Paul concluding that essentially none of it had anything to do with Roman law but rather the dispute had to do with some arcane nuances of Jewish religious laws. Now for reasons that aren't given, the former governor, Felix, apparently didn't want to rile the high priest and the Jewish leadership by outright acquittal of Paul, so Felix's solution was simply to do nothing and let the unconvicted Paul languish in prison until somehow the situation sort of worked itself out. Well now the new governor, Festus, was caught in a similar set of Chinese fingers as Felix. He needed to have good relations with the Jewish leadership since it was Felix's inability to maintain peace and quiet in Jerusalem that got him fired from his job. Yet as an able administrator and judge, Festus was not disposed to convict an obviously innocent man purely for the sake of local politics, especially when that man was a Roman citizen. However, Festus had a peculiar problem that Felix didn't have. As Paul was explaining himself to Festus, he declared his rights as a Roman citizen, to appeal his case directly to the emperor, who at this time was the notoriously fickle Nero. Festus had little choice but to grant Paul his wish, but at the same time the emperor would expect to have a well-articulated issue of Roman law presented to him in order to make a judgment. In this case... Festus had already determined that Paul had broken no Roman laws so he had no idea what he should write and send to Nero as the issues of this case that Nero was being asked to settle however by good fortune the Jewish king Agrippa and his sister Bernice had arrived in Caesarea for a visit so Festus thought that perhaps they could better understand these accusations against Paul and help Festus formulate a proper letter of charges to be sent along with Paul to Rome. Let's reread part of Acts 26 to begin. We'll start at verse 9. It's on page 1397 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I used to think it was my duty to do all I could to combat the name of Yeshua from Nazareth. And in Yerushalayim, I did so. And after receiving authority from the head Kohanim, the head priest, I myself threw many of God's people in prison when they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. Often I went from one synagogue to another, punishing them, trying to make them blaspheme. And in my wild fury against them, I even went so far as to persecute them in cities outside of the country. Now on one such occasion, I was traveling to uh, Damascus with the full authority and the power of the High Priest, I was on the road, it was noon, Your Majesty, when I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and my traveling companions and we all fell to the ground. And then I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Shaul, Shaul, why do you keep persecuting me? It's hard on you to be kicking against the ox goads." And I said, Who are you, sir? And the Lord answered, I am Yeshua, and you are persecuting me. But get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you to serve and bear witness to what you've already seen of me and to what you will see when I appear to you in the future. I will deliver you from the people and from the goyim, from the nations, from the Gentile nations. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they will turn from darkness to light, from the power of the adversary to God." and thus receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been separated for holiness by putting their trust in me so King Agrippa I did not disobey the vision from heaven on the contrary I announced first in Damascus then in Jerusalem and throughout uh, Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should turn from their sins to God and then do deeds consistent with that repentance It was because of these things that Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. However, I have had God's help. So to this day I stand testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what both the prophets and Moshe said would happen. That the Messiah would die, and that He, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to both the people and the Gentiles. But just as he reached this point in his defense, Festus shouted at the top of his voice, Shaul, you're out of your mind. So much learning is driving you crazy. But Shaul said, no, I'm not crazy, Festus, your excellency. Uh, Excellency, On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth, of sanity. For the king understands these matters, so to him I express myself freely, because I am sure that none of these things have been hidden from him. After all, they didn't happen in some back alley. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Sheol, In this short time, you're trying to convince me to become messianic? And Sheol replied, whether it takes a short time or a long time, I wish to God that not only you, but also everyone hearing me today might become just like me, except for these chains. And then the king got up, and with him the governor and Bernice and the others sitting with them, and after they had left, they said to one another, this man's doing nothing that deserves either death or prison. And Agrippa said to Festus, well, if he hadn't appealed to the emperor, he could have been released. Some Bible commentators aren't satisfied with Paul's approach in his speech because they aren't sure that what Shaul is saying is logical. So for them, there is doubt as to whether this account is entirely accurate. Now, while acknowledging their concerns, it seems to me that Paul is evidently saying that he completely understands his adversary's mindset... As regards their distrust, even their hatred of Yeshua and of this Jewish sect he spawned, the way, because Paul himself had once harbored these same views. And when witnessing to unbelievers about the Lord, or even when explaining to longtime believers about why they should take the entire Bible seriously, including the Torah, and that man-made church doctrines need to be re-examined and some taken with a pretty healthy dose of salt, it is usual for me to explain that not that long ago I was in their shoes with that same worldview that the majority Christian world holds. What we read here in Acts 26 as Paul's way of saying that he does not condemn his opponents for their current way of thinking because he understands that they are as ignorant of the truth as he used to be. Yet at the same time, Paul communicates that excuses aside, a new age is dawned. The kingdom of heaven has broken through. And it is time to set aside all prejudices and thought patterns and be willing to accept God's sovereign will and that begins with accepting His Son Yeshua as Lord and Savior. He goes on to say that He was not only in agreement in principle with the high priest in the Sanhedrin concerning Yeshua and the way, but He was an active part of the group who sought to arrest and persecute Christ's followers. He confesses. He voted with the majority to put Stephen to death for no other reason than he was a believer. Further, on behalf of the Sanhedrin, Paul traveled from synagogue to synagogue ferreting out any possible Jesus sympathizers and then trying to get them to blaspheme. Now in our previous lesson, we discussed the notion that's nearly universal among New Testament commentators that the blasphemy that Paul had in mind was to get these Messianic Jews to renounce Yeshua but that's illogical because from the point of view that Paul held at this time it was believing in Yeshua that was heretical not the act of renouncing Him In fact, if Paul could get a Jewish believer to renounce Christ and return to mainstream Judaism it was seen as a happy ending for everyone certainly not blasphemy So it's clear to me that Paul was trying to get the believers to say things against Jewish law against halakha which would then constitute a case of blasphemy and thus this could be taken before the Sanhedrin a charge which proved exacted the death penalty for the blasphemer well now that Paul has established his life history including where he was born his religious and his political affiliations and that he was against the very sect of Judaism that he's now part of he explains what brought on his radical change of heart Beginning in verse 12, he tells his story of meeting the risen Yeshua who speaks to Paul from heaven as Paul is traveling towards Damascus, Syria, to arrest some believers who have been reported to have fled to a synagogue there. As all who have taught for any length of time will tell you, it's sometimes necessary to repeat some of the more important information so that students have a better chance to digest it. So, I want to say again something that I've said to you in previous lessons. Even though most Bible commentators and pastors will refer to Paul's meeting with Christ on the road to Damascus as his conversion experience, it was anything but that. Paul did not convert. Paul merely learned, in a rather dramatic fashion, that the Messiah that he and all other Jews were waiting for had come. And his name was Yeshua of Nazareth. For a Jew to convert means he or she becomes a Gentile. Or in the religious sense of the New Testament, a Gentile Christian. And in fact, it is clearly the aim of many Christian denominations to establish Paul as leaving his Jewish heritage and religion behind and adopting a Gentile one. This doctrine of conversion is widespread in spite of Paul's claims to the contrary in the Bible because as the early church father Chrysostom and others before him and after him claimed, Paul maintained his outward Jewish appearance and customs as an elaborate but well-meaning deception. This was so he might have a better chance of gaining an audience with Jews for the purpose of telling them the gospel and then of course hopefully getting them to convert to being a Gentile Christian. This is the third time we've encountered the same story of Paul's experience with Yeshua. First of all, it was in chapter 9, then in chapter 22, so we're not going to go over every detail, as Paul recounts this experience in front of this distinguished audience now. Now, I'm going to mention, however, that there are minor differences in some of the smaller details among these three tellings, mainly involving how the bright light Light shone, who fell down, who got back up, who saw or heard what among those traveling with Shaul. What is key is that the event actually happened and that it was inherently supernatural. This is the point that Paul wants to come across to the dignitaries that are sitting in front of him, and to all, who all by the way, who might ever hear this story. Well, since the era of the Enlightenment, that began in Europe in the early 1700s A.D. The trend of Christianity has been to search for a rational explanation for what the ancient Bible clearly wants us to see as irrational to the human mind. And especially in the later 20th and now the 21st centuries among many Christians and Jews, An acceptable explanation of events such as the plagues that bedeviled Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea waters, Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, these must be presented as something that can happen in the natural realm since the supernatural is deemed but primitive and unintelligent myth. To that end, I found some words from a one-man play written by Philip Goebel a play called The Rabbi from Tarsus in which Paul is depicted as being interviewed by his friend and sometimes traveling companion Luke and Paul is giving Luke information for the gospel that Luke wants to write Now I'm going to quote this to you because not only is it delightful to hear but it truly exposes the folly of any Christian wanting to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. That is, for anyone who professes faith as a believer in Jesus, but then to demand that when reading the Bible, when we run across things that can only be described as miracles, we can't accept them unless a basis in science can be found to explain them. And I say, this itself is irrational, if not downright silly. And I truly believe that anyone who takes this approach may attach a Christian label to themselves, but in fact it's a dangerous self-deception that they think allows a person to have one foot in the kingdom of heaven and the other foot comfortably in the world. Listen to this because I chuckled over it long after I first read it and yet it is profound enough that it certainly added one more solid brick to my personal foundation of faith, perhaps it will to yours as well. This is Paul now in this play speaking to Luke about his experience on the road to Damascus, telling Luke all about it. He says, now, let me pause to clear up one thing, Luke, and this is for the benefit of the scoffers that you must refute. What exactly made me switch? Not religions, but vocations, from that of a persecutor to that of an advocate and an apostle. What was the problem, doctor? Are the scoffers right? Was it really just a case of sunstroke? Nervous collapse? Hallucinations? Guilt catharsis? Oh, what's truth for you, Paul, isn't truth for me, they say. There's natural explanations for everything. Yes, yes, doctor. Here is the natural explanation. One day, on the road to Damascus, while I tried to enforce the law of Moses piously, serving my God with all my heart, I, the arrester, I was arrested by a naive superstition. Quite naturally, a meteor just happened to blaze across the sky. And at the very same time, it just happened to thunder so that, so that the other rabbis quite naturally did see and hear something. Now, at the very same time, clumsy me, I just happened to fall off my horse. And at the very same time, I just happened to hallucinate with a nightmare vision complete with face, fire, and voice that just happened to be the enemy. My enemy. Who just happened want me to go to work for him and this work was to be among people who happened to be my enemies the Gentiles and at the very same time I just happened to have tissues form over both of my eyes with a purely accidental case of coincidental cataracts oh yes doctors there's natural explanations for everything if one has enough bad blind faith to go his own way Many, like Nero, are lords of their own lives who want to go their own way, even if it may lead to hell. But Luke, I had to trust God. And like any other disciple, I had to take a step of faith into the mikvah waters and then into that Damascus synagogue. Pretty good, isn't it? Well, back in Acts 26... Paul now continues his story of his experience with Christ with the words of verse 14, where he says that the voice from heaven not only identified himself as Yeshua, but he said something, says something interesting. He says he spoke to Paul in what? In Hebrew. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I find it most fortunate that Luke would include this seemingly minor bit of information because Yeshua could have spoken to Paul in his native Greek tongue even in Aramaic in which Paul was conversant but since Luke says that Messiah spoke to Paul in Hebrew I ask you, would he have said, hey Paul, it's me, Jesus (laughs) Or would he have said, hey, Shaul, it's me, Yeshua. See, I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek because whether you realize it or not, the names Paul and James are strictly English language words, a language that didn't come about until some 13 centuries after the New Testament was created. So for those of you who still have trouble with using the Hebrew names of Jewish Bible characters and especially of our Savior, please note that Christ clearly would have spoken of himself as Yeshua. He would have called Paul Shaul, since Luke specifically says that that entire conversation between Paul and Christ was in Hebrew. Well, then in verse 18, in a sentence that was sure to raise the eyebrows of his aristocratic audience... Paul says that Yeshua was sending him to open people's eyes in order that they might turn from darkness to light and that the people he was being sent to were both Jews and Gentiles and that those people, Jews and Gentiles, who put their trust in the very same person who had interrupted Paul's journey of persecution, well, they would receive forgiveness of sins and become a member of the community of those whom God has set apart for holiness. So now Paul's crossed the line. It's one thing to more or less instruct Agrippa and Bernice who because of their Jewishness they understood that Paul was speaking as a rabbi from a Jewish cultural and religious standpoint. But when Paul said that this trust in Yeshua was also necessary for Gentiles to have their sins forgiven this was a direct assault on Festus and on his gods. But understanding that essentially Agrippa was in attendance because of his Jewishness, Paul addresses him by name. And he says he did not disobey this vision from heaven. So he went on to Damascus, then back to Jerusalem, then he journeyed throughout the province of Judea proclaiming the good news about forgiveness of sins wherever he went. But even more, that people's lives needed to reflect that they had turned from their sins and repented. See, repentance is always presented, Old and New Testaments, as the prerequisite to forgiveness of sins. Whether that sin was atoned for by the blood of animals on the temple altar or by faith in the blood that Yeshua spilled at Calvary. Now now let me repeat that. The writers of the Holy Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation know nothing of a kind of forgiveness that occurs without first sincerely repenting and turning. I think this is perhaps the single reality that worries me the most for all who profess Christ. I mean, I, I worry that the weak doctrines taught today and for a long time, really, incorrectly tell seekers of God that one can achieve forgiveness of sins by merely professing Christ and maybe by attending church or synagogue from time to time but they can go right on living as before with only lip service paid to actual repentance confessing that one has sinned or is sinning or is contemplating sinning is not repentance although confession is a good and needed first step notice how John the Baptist this surprises people preached only one thing one thing only baptized for one thing only repentance the Baptist did not baptize for forgiveness of sins only for repentance to prepare for forgiveness of sins this naturally followed the law of Moses and its principles before presenting one sacrifice of atonement at the temple altar first that person had to have repented and gained a contrite heart if they didn't their sacrifice would have no effect It is the same for believers today. Too often I meet people who truly believe that praying the sinner's prayer is the beginning and the end of their obligation to God. How they live their lives, what they fill their minds with, and their personal behavior are not seen as a reflection of their faith or perhaps lack thereof, but rather they are entirely separate issues. James, actually Jacob, Yaakov, Yeshua's brother, the supreme leader of the way until his murder by the high priest in 62 AD, had strong words for those in his time who thought faith and behavior weren't connected. And those strong words are there as a warning for us too. In James 1, through 25, don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the word says, but do it. For whoever hears the word but doesn't do it, is like, uh, do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, who looks at himself and goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom, and continues, Becoming not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work it requires. Then he will be blessed in what he does. And lest anyone think that Paul had a different viewpoint on this subject, listen to this in Ephesians 2, 8-10. For you have been delivered by grace through trusting. And even this is not your accomplishment, but it's God's gift. You are not delivered by your own actions, therefore nobody should boast. For we are of God's making, created in union with the Messiah Yeshua for a life of good actions already prepared by God for us to do. You know, it's always been a struggle in the Christian faith to balance Trusting faith with works. And it seems that we always get a little too faith-heavy, meaning we see works as perhaps counterproductive, even as offensive to our faith, or too works-heavy, meaning that we focus so much on good works that we either get very proud or we lose sight of our first love, Yeshua. So while Paul is always consistent in insisting that salvation is an act of grace that is not achieved by our good works, at the same time, he counters that if we have truly received the divine grace brought about by our trust in Yeshua, then it ought to manifest itself as good fruit in our lives. If the good fruit, synonymous with good works, isn't there... This can be an indication of a pretty serious problem. And this is because we weren't given salvation simply for its own sake. But rather salvation is the necessary spiritual condition to ready us for doing the good actions already prepared by God for us to do, as Paul says. And finally in verse 20, Paul states the reasons as he sees it for his being harassed and arrested first, he took this message of good news to Gentiles and second, he went to Jewish synagogues and proclaimed the same so the issue is that the Jewish religious leadership were livid that Paul took a message of salvation which they didn't believe in which was manifest in Yeshua of Nazareth, who they didn't believe in, to Gentiles, who they saw as occupiers. Once again, we find that the issue is actually political and cultural. It's not religious. I also want to alert you to something we discussed last week. It is that in verse 21, look at it, where the complete Jewish Bible says it was because of those things that Jews seized me, almost all English translations will say it was the Jews, adding the article the before the word Jews. The article is simply not there in the Greek. By adding the to make it the Jews seized me, it becomes an indictment of Jews in general. By leaving out the article the, as in the oldest Greek documents we have, then it means that only certain Jews seized Paul. Now these seemingly minor nuances, or perhaps better discrepancies, that appear all throughout most standard English Bible translations are additive in their effect. Suddenly, instead of Paul or Yeshua, being accused or persecuted by a certain group of Jews, we find the entire Jewish race being implicated, which was never the intent of that scripture passage. Paul says he's been able to withstand the plots and attacks against him because he had God's help. So in the conclusion of his speech he says that he has said nothing except what the prophets and what Moses said would happen. In other words, he's claiming that he's not created some new doctrine, nor has he said anything against normative Judaism. So is he talking about Jewish law here? No. Just as we discussed in earlier lessons about how to know, when Paul uses the term law, whether he means Jewish law, halakha, or the law of Moses, the Torah, here we see that when he says the prophets and Moses, it's exactly synonymous with the term the prophets and the law. Saying someone follows Moses is just shorthand for saying they follow the law of Moses. So, By using the terms Moses and prophets together, we know for certain that Paul is speaking of Holy Scripture. He's not speaking of traditions and customs. Shaul is saying he is being persecuted for simply believing and quoting the Holy Scriptures. And we find that Paul said nothing about Yeshua that Yeshua didn't also say about himself. In the Gospel of Luke, we find this. In Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, he, Yeshua, spoke to them. Foolish people! You're so unwilling to put your trust in everything the prophet spoke. Didn't the Messiah have to die like this? before entering his glory then starting with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them the things that can be found throughout the Tanakh the Old Testament concerning himself Paul also says that the scriptures explain that Messiah would die and rise from the dead and he would proclaim light to Jews and Gentiles This, first of all, put him at odds with the high priest and the Sadducees because they didn't believe in a resurrection even though the scriptures clearly speak of it. But that doesn't matter because in most of Judaism and Christianity traditions and customs often trump the Bible. If the religious leadership in Paul's day actually believed God's word, they would see that Paul exactly fit the profile of the prophesied servant of Isaiah 49 who would announce light to both Jews and Gentiles. Paul is being persecuted for doing the very thing God says must happen. And Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. So now Adonai says, he formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to have Israel gathered to him, so that I will be honored in the sight of Adonai, my God, having become my strength. He has said, it's not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the offspring of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation will spread to the ends of the earth. So here the venerated Isaiah says that the day will come when light will come to the nations. What does that mean? To be a light to the nations. The word for light in Isaiah is the same word that we find early in Genesis regarding creation. That word is Or. And or is better translated as enlightenment than light. Or is a spiritual term that speaks of God's enlightenment. It speaks of good, of truth. It does not mean light that comes from, a, from light-emitting objects, such as from the, from, from the sun or from the stars or from a light bulb. So clearly the meaning here in Isaiah is that God's enlightenment, God's truth, will be taken by this honored servant to the Gentiles. Paul's doing exactly that. But now, in verse 24, Festus simply loses it. He cannot fathom what Paul has been saying. Interestingly, Paul wasn't even addressing Festus. Now to Festus... Now this is a man who doesn't know God. The divine truth that Paul has been speaking sounds like foolish nonsense, the ramblings of a madman. Well, of course. Of course it does. One must be of God to understand the things of God. Festus was anything but that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now the natural man does not receive the things from the Spirit of God. To him, they are nonsense. Moreover, he's unable to grasp them because they are evaluated through the Spirit. Many years ago, my wife and I were visiting her elderly father. He was a college-educated man who was a retired school teacher. He found the Bible impossible to comprehend. And one day we were sitting together in his living room talking about something in the Bible when he just burst out in frustration that he has tried and tried and tried to read the Bible but it was just words that formed no meaning for him. He said that he saw. Obviously, there are sentences and paragraphs, and that the words were actual words, but they made no sense to his mind. He was not a believer. A few years later, only months before he passed away, he made his peace with God. He entered a local church that had been very kind to him. He walked forward and he went to his knees. And he sincerely prayed for forgiveness. He received Christ. We saw him a few weeks later. And he was reading his Bible. He said all of a sudden, the words have meaning. And they bring him great comfort. He couldn't understand why, until then... Those biblical passages were just a jumble of nouns, adjectives, and verbs. Festus was an educated an intelligent man, but he worshipped the pagan Roman gods. He had no relationship with the true God, and he admittedly knew little about Jews or Jewish religion. So Paul's words were just so much noise and clatter to him. Essentially, Paul's speech and the beautiful life-giving truths that were embedded within it were far beyond Festus' spiritual capacity to grasp. And this is something we must understand when we speak to non-believers about the Lord. Unless the Lord has already done a work in them, everything we might say seems like foolishness because non-believers have no spiritual capacity to understand them. Paul responds with great courage to Festus. He's not saying crazy talk but rather what he's speaking is truth and sanity. And the King Agrippa surely understands these matters being Jewish So that's why Paul was addressing himself to Agrippa, not to Festus. So then Paul confronts Agrippa and he asks him the $64,000 question. Hey, king, you do believe in the prophets, right? Agrippa is incredulous. He's also no doubt somewhat embarrassed. So he fires back that now he realizes that all along Paul's been trying to persuade him to become a believer. Paul minces no words. And he acknowledges that indeed he'd like for Agrippa to become a believer. And in fact, he wants everyone to become a believer. Well, that last thought was a real conversation stopper. Agrippa and Berenice had heard enough. They quickly made their exit even though in Festus' opinion Paul was perhaps not in his right mind and despite Paul's aggressive evangelism he had certainly not done anything that deserved death or prison so essentially Agrippa and Bernice proved to be of no help to poor old Festus he still had no idea what to tell Nero about Paul's case well the chapter closes with Agrippa dumbfounded that Paul had appealed to the emperor because since he has essentially already been found not guilty he could have walked away a free man right then but because Paul appealed he would now have to remain in custody many more months maybe a year, maybe more until he could be transported to Rome and until Nero could hear his case See, what Agrippa doesn't know is that God had planned it this way, that Paul was aware of it and happy as he could be that he was about to get a free ticket to Rome so that he could share the good news with the Romans and hopefully even with Nero himself, all as God told him would happen several years earlier. Now what to the average person might seem hmm, like a terrible outcome for Paul. I mean, still remaining incarcerated for now well over two years was for Paul a victory. What a lesson for us. What a lesson. Even the unpleasant things that happen in life that seem to be anywhere from inconvenient to painful or even catastrophic are perceived by our fleshly eyes as something terrible. But they may well be God's plan and purpose for us and it's all contained in that if we'll just take it up, if we'll just grasp hold of it. Paul wasn't being punished or ignored by God. A lot of people thought he was. He was being used in one of the mightiest ways we're ever going to find in Holy Scripture. But it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't comfortable and it sure wasn't convenient. Luke 9.23 Then to everyone Christ said, If anyone wants to come after me, let him say no to himself. Take up his execution state daily and keep following me Paul exemplified Yeshua's statement so the question we each face if we have the courage to be honest with ourselves is how far away from our comfort zones are we willing to go should the Lord call us how far what is the limit to our self-sacrifice and personal discomfort that we are willing to experience in order to do the Lord's will, in order to say yes. Paul had no limit. Next time we'll take up Paul's perilous voyage to Rome and we are going to hear one of the most amazing and dramatic sea stories ever recorded in ancient history.